Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Israel-Hamas war. The courageous leadership that might solve this most intractable of problems. By Graham Tomlin. How can you say something sensible about the horror that has unfolded in Gaza and southern Israel in this last week? The actions of Hamas were deplorable. Whatever the perceived justice of a cause, using rape as a weapon of war, kidnapping and killing babies and children, parading terrified kids as trophies of war in a premeditated campaign is abhorrent and indefensible. However sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, surely no one who can imagine the terror felt by teenagers taken hostage, parents fearing what is to happen to their children, or the notion of cutting the head off a fellow human being can celebrate the actions taken by Hamas. The irony of Western liberals expressing loud support for Hamas, an Islamist group that is fundamentally opposed to all the ideals of Western liberalism, is a strange quirk of our confused contemporary moral life. Of course, these developments need to be seen in the light of the long-running hostility between Palestinians and Israelis and their supporters elsewhere in the world. The issue cuts right along the already existing fissure of the culture wars, and those on the left, generally supporting the Palestinians, sometimes veering into outright anti-Semitism, as the Labour Party has discovered, and those on the right, supporting Israel, sometimes veering into uncritical support of any action by the current Israeli government, a concession few would offer to any other national government worldwide. The result is a depressingly familiar pattern. Over the coming weeks and months, the people of Gaza will probably endure constant bombardment, food and power shortages, most likely a ground attack, death, destruction and huge suffering. The infrastructure of the enclave will be destroyed yet again, although more severely this time, leaving the problem of rebuilding hospitals, schools, houses, sewage systems that take years to construct. The people who suffer, like the Israelis who have had loved ones cruelly taken from them, will be the ordinary people of Gaza. It may lead to the satisfaction of having punished the perpetrators, but will leave behind a legacy of continued hatred and resentment of Israel that will only erupt again in a decade or so's time. Successive world leaders, American presidents and international commissions have tried to solve this most intractable of global problems and failed. Yet other seemingly intractable problems have managed to find a way forward. Tensions between Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland haven't gone away, but the violence that accompanied them has largely ceased. Racial inequalities in South Africa remain, but apartheid as a policy is discredited, and again, the threat of violence has diminished. The common denominator in these places, where deep divisions have found some resolution, is a new, reimagined and bold leadership on both sides of each dispute. It required a willingness to think the unthinkable and do the undoable. In South Africa, 
It was the courageous and mould-breaking leadership offered by both Nelson Mandela and F.W. de Klerk. Both did things unimaginable in their respective camps beforehand. The idea that Nelson Mandela would one day wear a Springbok rugby shirt, the symbol of the oppressor, was unthinkable for the young ANC activist. As unthinkable as an Israeli prime minister wearing an Arab kafir or an Arab leader waving an Israeli flag. The idea that F.W. de Klerk would dismantle apartheid, free Mandela and fully back an election that he was likely to lose to the ANC was again inconceivable when he took power as prime minister in 1989. Similarly, in Northern Ireland, the idea of Ian Paisley, the embodiment of Protestant no-surrender, and Martin McGuinness, second-in-command of the IRA in Derry at the time of the Bloody Sunday in 1972, shaking hands and sharing power was literally unimaginable when the troubles were at their height. These were all flawed men, each with some measure of blame for the suffering involved in their countries, yet who saw a better way and had the courage to take it. Of course, these very public gestures of reconciliation took years of careful negotiation and sensitive diplomacy to achieve. Yet they happened. And they happened because these leaders gradually recognised that the path they were walking down would only lead to ongoing mutual destruction, continued conflict and suffering. As the saying goes, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. This is what has been lacking in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The Palestinian people have been badly let down by the ineffectiveness and corruption of Fatah and the senseless Islamist terror of Hamas, exploiting the understandable sense of injustice in Gaza in particular for violent ends. As is often observed, if the Palestinians had had wiser leaders, there would have been an independent Palestinian state years ago, whether through the UN partition plan in 1947, which offered 46% of the land to an Arab state, in the 1990s, the Oslo Accords or other opportunities in between. On the Israeli side in recent years, Prime Ministers like Ariel Sharon and Benjamin Netanyahu have played on the, to be fair, often justified fear of Israelis to offer themselves as the security candidates who can keep Israel safe by building a wall or enact tighter border controls around Palestinian communities, restricting their movement as long-standing Palestinian resentment at the loss of their land will just go away one day if you keep the pressure on long enough. There have been glimmers of hope. In the lead-up to the creation of the Jewish state in 1948, the Zionist philosopher and politician Martin Buber argued for the right of Jews for a homeland, yet also believed the moral test of that homeland was going to be the way they would treat their Arab neighbours. For him, the call on the new Jewish state was bigger than just to provide a place safe for Jews to live, but in alignment with the Old Testament call on the people of Israel was to be a blessing to the nations. As he wrote in his visionary book, A Land of Two Peoples, a true Zionist wants not to rule over his Arab brothers, but to serve together with them. 
If his vision of Zionism had won out over the more aggressive version of David Ben-Gurion, might this long history of conflict have been avoided? In the 1980s, Anwar Sadat moved from being the leader of Egypt's attack on Israel in the Yom Kippur War of 1973 to the architect of a groundbreaking peace treaty with Menachem Begin, Israel's prime minister at the time. Later still, the Oslo Accords of the 1990s offered the possibility of a resolution, land of peace. Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat shook hands on the White House lawn as hopes began to rise of a new dawn for the Middle East. Yet in both cases, it cost these leaders their lives. Sadat's assassination by an Islamic extremist in 1981 Rabin's assassination by a Jewish militant in 1995 and the subsequent refusal of both sides to build on these delicate beginnings effectively put an end to the fragile hopes for peace. Over many visits to that extraordinary land, I have experienced two communities with much in common, living alongside one another, yet with little direct interaction and often living in fear of the other. Many Jews believe all Arabs want to kill them. Many Gazans think all Israelis want them dead. Of course, some do on both sides. But most people simply want to live in peace without the threat of explosions or being killed or home demolitions and feeling like second-class citizens. If I have a prayer for the land of Israel and Palestine, it is for bold, imaginative leaders. There was once such a Jewish leader in Israel. There were, at the time as now, fights over who really owned the land. The Jewish people, with their roots in the story of Abraham, Moses and King David. Or the Gentile Roman Empire, with might on their side. The question of how you should deal with your enemy was a live one. Different Jewish groups argued that you should hate the Gentile enemy and kill them, the zealots, blend in with them the Herodians, avoid any contact with them, the Pharisees, or feel superior to them, the Sadducees. Jesus of Nazareth came up with the crazy idea that you should love them and pray for them, and thus be true children of the God who made both you and your enemy. Unrealistic? Maybe. And also today, perhaps much too early to talk about such a thing when emotions are so raw, Such a call doesn't deny Israel's right to reasonable self-defence and the Palestinian right to legitimate protest. But this was the basic idea that lay behind the revolutionary leadership of Nelson Mandela, F.W. de Klerk, Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley. Here were leaders who were prepared to take the bold path away from violence and bloodshed. In each case, it took leaders on both sides to find a way forward. A commitment to such a path on one side alone is not enough. If that is all you have, then you get killed, just as Jesus did. And of course, such a path does not avoid the possibility of suffering and even death, as both Sadat and Rabin found out. Yet, in the strange mystery of God's working, even that, especially that, was the path to peace. In the depressing cycle of hatred and death, the grieving families of Israel and Gaza, the weeping sons and daughters of Isaac and Ishmael, we can only pray for new leaders 
who will walk the difficult yet fruitful path of making enemies into friends. Disney at 100, The Magic Kingdom's Simulation of Modern Life, by Jared Stacey. Walt Disney once said, Remember, it all started with a mouse. An incredible fact, considering that after a century of Disney, it is impossible to describe and interpret our modern world without mentioning Disney, the Christian church included. Once, Disney came up during an interview I took for a pastoral role at an American megachurch. Those with experience in low-church American contexts won't be surprised at what comes next. During the interview, the church's creative director casually mentioned taking his entire creative team to Disney World. It hadn't been a pleasure trip. Church employees toured Disney's backstage creative department for inspiration they could bring back to the church. For this church, the Disney company, its vision and practices, was an index for its own. Now, my hunch is this little anecdote will offend the sensibilities of readers who are practising Christians in high church traditions. I might also guess it will equally offend secular readers who see Disney as the archetype of corporate greed, pushing glib, crass sentimentalism as art. Christian readers might share some of these criticisms as well. Together, this is what, back in 2001, sociologist Alan Bryman recognised as the Disneyization of society. Bryman's work demonstrates how most criticism of Disney tends to expand into criticism of modern life itself. Walt Disney himself dedicated Disneyland at its opening in 1955 with the words, This park is dedicated to the hard facts that made America. To talk about Disney and the modern world is ironically enough to take Walt at his word. It means reflecting on modern America and globalisation and the economics, aesthetics, ethics and politics which characterise it. I have more to say about this, but first, we need to tackle just where Disney sits today in the social and political moment. Disney today finds itself in a familiar position – fixed in the crosshairs of US conservatives waging the culture war. Ironically, both culture war and Disney are some of America's prime exports. But Disney today is as wise to the market as it's ever been. It is not a purveyor of morality, but of products that must, like any good neoliberal agent, sail with the prevailing winds of market-based morality. Disney promotes prevailing values domestically and does the same for values of the Chinese Communist Party internationally. For example, in its stateside parks, Disney recently decolonized or altered some of its attractions. It rethemed Splash Mountain attraction, a water ride based on Walt Disney's Song of the South film. The 1949 film is banned on Disney's streaming platform. It traded in racist tropes and revisionist historical propaganda, often called the Lost Cause, which originated in the American South after the Civil War. Disney also altered a scene from the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, which depicted women as victims of sex trafficking. These are surely good changes. But... 
Conservatives tend to categorise these changes together with LGBTQ inclusivity efforts under the appropriated phrase woke. Armed with a weaponized slogan, vapid reactionaries continue to influence popular sentiment on Disney. Meanwhile, Disney's CEO Bob Iger met with the US government's House Select Committee on China to discuss Disney's censorship practices and production in the Chinese market. To talk about Disney in the present immediately sense is to, among other things, grapple with the political power of corporations, the moralities that sustain market practices, and the formative power of binge-watching on human beings. But what about Disney in the broader sense, the Disney that is a window into the failed promises of modernity? There are promises and possibilities that continue to haunt us, as well as shape us. The end of his life... Walt Disney had more in common with Elon Musk than J.K. Rowling. He was more obsessed with harnessing technology in service of progress. His ultimate dream, called Epcot, or Experimental Prototype City of Tomorrow, was envisioned as the sum total expression of his theme parks. Disney wanted to take all the lessons of Disneyland and redirect them towards the construction of a permanent livable World's Fair Expo in the backwater of Florida's swamps. But Epcot today is something of a simulcrum. It houses a world showcase where you can stroll the streets of Paris, Piazza San Marco, or a Mayan pyramid that houses a water ride. Disney even hosts student worker programmes to ensure that if you order fish and chips in its England, you will be served by someone from York, Surrey or Manchester. But this is not what Epcot was supposed to be. Walt envisioned it as a real-time, fully functioning city of tomorrow, where all the best and brightest of American post-war technology, might and efficiency would make the human society something called better. In short, Epcot was Disney's public works project. The ancient Greeks had a word for projects like this, liturgy. The English word comes to us from combining the Greek noun for people, litos or laos, with the Greek verb for working, ergos. Nowadays, we tend to associate liturgy with the Christian tradition, particularly the external rites and forms of worship for the church. But the idea of Christian liturgy emerged from this ancient Greek practice of private financing of public projects. George Tridemus shows how these works for the people were originally a Greek form of politics. To the Athenians, liturgies were a symbiotic practice. The wealthy elite competing for the honour and power associated with the project, while each project served everyday citizens of Athens. I can find no better word to describe Disney's parks. Liturgy, both in the Greek and Christian sense, speaks to how the parks provide a public service and fuel a religious experience. They are a public works project that continue to shape the American consciousness, directing its worship, which is inevitably exported too, through the medium of culture. If you doubt the religious factor of the parks, Ask again why a church might find itself believing a tour of Disney serves its task of Christian proclamation and formation. This isn't just crass entertainment. 
but a profound yet often under-interrogated influence. This is why I think Disney biographer Neil Gabler puts his finger on the essence of Disney's parks. He argued that the parks aren't successful because they provide an escape from reality, but because they provide a better reality than the one outside. In this sense, the Disney Imagineers don't just tell good stories, they master physical space. The parks continue to attract guests the world over, not because of popular franchises, but because, as a public works project, the entire park's experience is a high-control, surveyed effort to provide public efficiency, thematic immersion, crowd control, transportation, all of it. The parks exist as an inhabitable space that suspends the contradictions of modern life and actually resolves them in a simulated fashion. To treat the parks as a tasteless venture into plastic sentimentalism obscures how the parks attempt to satisfy, at nearly every turn, the modern contradictions that shape our human experience. To say this experience is a religious one would not be far from the truth. The Athenian liturgy and Christian liturgy converging into one. This is one reason why, however tragic it may be, churches in America continue to emulate Imagineers. The architecture of churches constructed within and without Christendom have communicated transcendence. And in spite of America's embrace of Protestantism, we should not be surprised that American Christian traditions continue to emulate Disney's mastery of physical space in the key of modernity. I understand criticisms of all things Disney, from parks and art to economics and adult Disney fans. But the parks are a liturgical experience, both in a religious sense and in a public sense. To understanding the staying power and influence of Disney means grappling at a human level with the park experience as a simulated resolution of modern life, rather than as escape. How Travis Kels upped his game, courting Taylor Swift, by Tori Balcom. If you live on planet Earth, you no doubt have heard of our now famous local love story. Kansas City Chiefs tight end player Travis Kels is courting pop sensation Taylor Swift. One can read multiple accounts of this special love story on the internet. One of my favourites was written by London's The Guardian, I don't intend to repeat this well-known narrative. Rather, I wish to add commentary from what my wife calls a certified Catholic romantic, or what my students call me, a lover of human love. From the outset, please don't get me wrong. I don't mean to canonise Taylor Swift or Travis Kells or propose that their relationship is the ideal. I merely want to notice some very healthy things about it. I tip my hand in the opening sentence. I describe this relationship as courtship, not dating. Courtship differs from dating in terms of its intention, methods and goal. A man courts a woman whenever he pursues her seriously for a romantic relationship that is opened to the exclusiveness of marriage. The intent 
serious and goal-exclusive, determines the methods. After Ms Swift declined Mr Kelsey's unimaginative I'm-just-a-good-old-boy friendship bracelet, he decided to up his game, or better, run his own route. He invited Swift to return to Arrowhead Stadium to watch him light up the stage, just as she had done three months earlier. She accepted this time. They met on common turf with uncommon talent, but she first made him work for the right party. Courtship requires work, which brings clarity to the relationship. Ends determine methods. Another difference between courtship and dating is that it's a family affair. Persons are more than individuals. We are social creatures who live, move and have our being in webs of relationships. We cannot know each other truly or deeply apart from those webs that create and sustain us. At the first two Chiefs games Miss Swift attended, she was cheering alongside Mr Kelsey's mum. After those central relationships have been honoured, the widening circle of friends are introduced. And good friends know their role. Circle a couple's relationship and then face the crowd. Kelsey's teammate, Patrick Mahomes, as usual, threaded the needle, saying, She's good people. Now let's let them alone. What Kelsey recently told reporters was refreshing. It feels like I was on top of the world after the Super Bowl. And right now, I'm even more on top of the world, he said. And when asked about having to navigate so much public interest in his relationship, he said, You've got a lot of people who care about Taylor, and for good reason. Excellent answer. Finally, not all courtships end in marriage. And if this one doesn't, it's not a failure. If the couple loves each other well they will leave the relationship better for having known each other. Courtship is always a growth in self-knowledge by way of self-donation. They will grow as they learn to give of themselves. May they give of themselves and by doing so, learn to make their love work. As others have already said, this is the best catch of Travis Kelsey's life and I, for one, hope he never lets go. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.